arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. We're easy to fight off. So I guess the moral of the story is never eat mystery road honey. A favorite flower for bridal bouquets and shady spots in the garden, Lily of the Valley has a shady side too, which you might know if you're a fan of Breaking Bad. Lily of the Valley contains nearly 20 or more different cardiac glycosides, the same kind of toxins found in oleander. One of the major ones is convalotoxin which is one of the most active natural substances affecting the heart that we know of. Like all cardiac glycosides, it messes with the sodium-potassium pump and wreaks havoc on your heartbeat, so it gets slow and irregular, or in extreme cases, undergoes cardiac arrest. Lily of the Valley also contains other toxins called saponins. These aren't very toxic by comparison, but if you eat a lot of them, they'll give you a pretty upset stomach. Saponins are a lot like soap. They're surfactants, which means their molecules have a hydrophilic, or water-friendly end, and a hydrophobic, or water-avoiding end. And you know what else is made up of carefully arranged hydrophilic and hydrophobic parts? Your cell membranes. So because they're surfactants, saponins can punch holes in cell membranes. And the cells lining your gastrointestinal tract do not appreciate this. Most of the time when someone is poisoned by lily of the valley, it's an accident. Like a little kid that tried eating the plants inviting red berries. Or one case study in a medical journal of an elderly woman with dementia who loved the scent of some she was given as a gift and unfortunately ate them. Lily of the valley. Administered properly, it can cause death, and did. Jones suspects Sean Grogan now is the true murderer of Lou Marlowe when he finds out Grogan is the prime mover in Lou Marlowe's company. Club Max has its grand opening and brings in a huge crowd. Jones is invited to Club Max by the wacky Katrina from the state hospital. Bucky strolls into Club Max and later Herbert Lane arrives. One big mess. Let's begin episode two of Anthony's Story by Robert P. Fitton, beginning now. Anthony's Story by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 6. Kevin, is Herbert Lane going to arrest Hamilton? Jones performed a quick U-turn on Route 32 to Hamilton, and then he raced down the hills toward Prince William into the courthouse. I can't comment on that. He's going over to Fletcher Hill to question Hamilton in a half an hour. Hamilton has waived counsel if he's not answering his phones. I'm at the courthouse waiting for Herbert to come out. He's already got his limo running out front. Hamilton Fletcher's a lot of things, Kevin, but he's not a murderer. Herbert thinks that he has Hamilton nailed. I don't see it either. We need more info. I'm on my way over there. Matthias, you know I respect your abilities, and I appreciate your help, but you need to back off this Marlowe. Why, Kevin? can only say that it's more complicated than you might think. So? You'll end up in trouble. Are you threatening me, Kevin? I'm not, but listen to what I'm saying. Thanks, said Jones as he hung up. Jones pushed Coco's name on his cell phone. The line rang for the longest time. Then Jones heard rattling and cars passing by. Chauncey. Coco, Phillips is trying to get me to back off the Marlowe case. Herbert Lane is heading to Fletcher Hill in less than a half an hour. He's got the limo running and ready to go. Kevin Phillips won't comment if Hamilton could be arrested. Lane's an idiot. He's got nothing. 
Listen, I'm at Restaurant Supply, just a few blocks from the courthouse. What are you going to do? I'll take care of this bozo, Lane. Listen, Jonesy, call Bentley in Bermuda and get his ass back here. I'll be at the courthouse in a sec. I'll talk to you. Jones accelerated to 60 miles an hour, then slowed at the cemetery road to Prince William. He speed-dialed L.G. Bentley. L.G.'s voice was tinny from Bermuda. Bias, how are things on the home front? L.G., you heard about Lou Marlowe. No, we're on a private boat after my daughter Diane's wedding. What's Marlowe up to now? Not much. He's dead. What? asked L.G. Jones came to a full stop at the end of the cemetery. Why didn't Hamilton call me? You don't understand. He parachuted out of a plane and someone cut the chute ropes. He crashed on Fletcher Hill. After a long silence, L.G. spoke again. Listen to me. I can't leave my daughter's wedding in the festivities here. Wait, it gets better, said Jones as he shifted. Hamilton is a prime suspect. Oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, really? Herbert Lane is about to leave for Fletcher Hill to question Hamilton. Who's representing him? He's representing himself. Let me get on the phone. Hamilton needs legal representation. See if you can delay Herbert until I get someone over to Fletcher Hill. Keep your line open. I will. Thanks, LG. Jones parked the Jeep and stepped onto the sidewalk in the afternoon light. Herbert's black limo was already running at the curb. Jones nonchalantly walked down the sidewalk with his keys clutched in his hand. Further down the sidewalk, Coco, in a dark jogging suit and cigarette in the corner of his mouth, stepped from a black truck with a bright Club Max sign on the side door. When he reached the limo, he knelt and twisted something into the valve stem of Herbert Lane's limo. Then he backtracked toward the Club Max truck. Jones started up the courthouse stairs and his phone rang. Jonesy. What did you do? What are you, naive, Jonesy? I flattened Lane's tire. See how fast he gets to Hamilton with a flat. Jones grinned. But Herbert will find another way to get over to Fletcher Hill. I don't trust Lane. Coco then chuckled. <laughs> don't worry. Lane's going to have heavy traffic on the way to Hamilton. Incredible. Then i got to tell the old man to get the hell out of town. Coco, let the lawyers take over. Hello? Coco? Jones put the cell back in his pocket and opened the oak doors. Once inside, he spotted the sandy-haired Kevin Phillips and three officers in blue at the base of the stairs. Phillips saw Jones and excused himself as Jones emptied his pockets and moved through the scanner. You must have flown over here, Matthias. You want to know why I'm here? said Jones, putting his wallet and phone back in his pocket. After you told me to back off? Phillips' eyes tightened. Well, it's for your own good. I'll decide on my own good, Kevin. I'm afraid Hamilton may even leave town. Come on, Kevin, you don't think Hamilton had anything to do with this, do you? I know Marlowe and Hamilton were at war with one another for years. You're keeping things from me. I've done my best in the past to help your investigations, and Hamilton Fletcher is under suspicion. Phillips opened his notebook and lowered his voice. Look it. Kostecki, who worked for Lou Marlowe, got real belligerent at the airport. He's being seen at the county psychiatric hospital. Kostecki. I was over to visit Lark, and Lou Milo's right-hand man, Sean Grogan, came storming in there, demanding to talk to Kostecki. Then he left in a huff. We heard all about it. How? Look, Matthias, enough. I'm being pressured by Lane to contain this. Was Kostecki really that wild? Yes. 
What else is going on here, Kevin? I literally can't comment on it. Phillips panned the lower part of the courthouse. He flipped the page in his notebook and then checked the staircase to Herbert Lane's office. I talked to Kostecki's wife. She's a little weird. Kostecki has worked for Tri-State Air for 17 years. Guy's been straight as an arrow. He has 11 weeks of vacation he hasn't even taken. Has he ever had any mental issues? Philip shook his head and closed his notebook. Been married to Sylvia for 24 years, right after he got out of the service. She's shocked. Kostecki lost it after Lou Marlowe's plane flew over Fletcher Hill. Now, enough. I find the timing very interesting. Kostecki ever jumped from airplanes? Phillips pulled Jones around the staircase corner. He was in the Army. Honorably discharged, no parachuting. What'd he do? Driver! Oh, what about Grogan? Why is he visiting Kostecki? Not only that, why is he so upset he can't see Kostecki? Obviously, there's a connection. Look, I just had a go-around with Mulvaney. He's pressuring me, too, and for the department to stay away from the investigation. The NTSB and the FBI are investigating the Lou Marlowe incident. It's not an accident. You know the damn cords were cut, Kevin. Lane seems to want the FBI handling it, too. Herbert Lane is concerned about one thing. Yeah, what's that? Herbert Lane. Phillips! shouted Herbert from the main staircase outside. We never talked. Jones nodded his head and Phillips ran back up the stairs. He wandered back out front. Jones! shouted the bulbous Lane in his three-piece suit at the top of the wide wood staircase. Three young lawyers, including one with gold jewelry and slicked back hair, trailed alongside Lane as he held the banister on the way down. His gray toupee was cockeyed. <laughs> All rise, said Jones. Lane slowly meandered down the stairs. Leaving work so early, Herbert? What are you doing in my courthouse, Jones? I thought I might get a guided tour. You better watch it, Jones. Chick Mulvaney of the FBI is here, said Herbert as he pointed up the stairs, and he doesn't want your interference. On the upper floor, a square-faced man with dark hair, greased back, stared at Jones. He wore a maroon blazer and dark pants. Lane pointed at Jones, and his toupee stayed rigid as his forehead wrinkled. I will assume that you know about Hamilton Fletcher's stunt. You mean Lou Marlowe's stunt. Stay out of it, Jones. I don't care if you work for Hamilton or the man in the moon. You bringing in reinforcements with Mulvaney? Is that why he's here? Mulvaney will squeeze you like an orange at breakfast. I'll switch to cranberry juice. Always the wise-ass, Jones. You don't think Hamilton is still in the area, do you, Herbert? You know something, don't you? What did he tell you? He turned to the man with the gold jewelry. Roland, make sure Hamilton Fletcher is still at Fletcher Hill. Call Ham Fletcher if you have to. Yes, Herbert. Roland, we're out in public. It's Mr. District Attorney. Yes, yes, sir, said Chance, taking out his cell phone. Jones had already dialed Fletcher Hill, tying up the line, and talked with Hollings, the butler. Mulvaney had left the upper area of the courthouse. As he made small talk, Jones grinned at Chance again and then redialed Hamilton's home number. What the hell is the delay, Roland? asked Lane. The line is a busy, Herbert. Uh, Mr. District Attorney. Well, that's baloney. 
said Lane as he pulled out his phone. Did you call his cell? Nah, no, sir. Oh, brilliant. Lane slowly punched in Hamilton Fletcher's cell phone. The damn line is just ringing. He must see my number. He won't get away from me. Jones ended the call with Hollings. Herbert, I can talk to Mr. Fletcher when I get back to Hamilton. Jones, if you think I'm going to let you run interference for me, well, you've got another thing coming. Herbert moved to the right and Jones stepped to the right. The district attorney reversed the move and Jones stepped to the left. Out of my way, Jones! You heard the district attorney, said Roland Chance, moving forward. You're the one who said you'd become district attorney, Roland, said Jones. Did you say that, Roland? demanded Herbert, stopping. No, sir, I just said someday. I, I don't need dissension in the ranks. You have delayed us long enough, Jones. Lane led the others toward the huge oak doors. Remember what I said, said Phillips as he headed with two Prince William cops out the side door. Jones watched Herbert slowly move toward the limo. His cell phone rang. Jones. Bias, this is LG. Where's Hamilton? I can't get him on any of his phones. LG, Hamilton may have left the area. Well, that's not good. In fact, it shows guilt. He's being falsely accused. I have Sherman Hadley and his team on the way from Boston, just in case they're needed. Sherman's one of my closest friends. We went to law school together. The chauffeur helped Lane in his car, followed by Roland Chance. Can you delay Herbert any longer? I think that's being taken care of. Thank you. Keep me briefed. The chauffeur swung inside to the driver's seat. He shifted, but as the limo moved along the curb, the rear wheel thumped. Jones grit his teeth. The limo hobbled to a stop. The driver then Roland Chance climbed outside. Chance helped Lane from the car. Lane became indignant when the driver pointed at the tire and the tilted limo's rear quarter. Lane had been delayed. Jones had just plugged his cell into the charger when the ring chimes sounded and the red light flashed. He turned onto Route 32 before the highway began its ascent over the Devonshire Hills. Then he picked up the phone as he flicked the high beams lever, spreading light across the winding road. LG? No, it's Bucky Driscoll. Jones' brow tightened. Bucky, what do you want? Great news. Yeah, what's the great news? Arnie sprung this cookie factory. Oh, my heart goes out to him. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm in the middle of something. Got a hot date, huh? Don't worry, I won't tell Cat. Why would you tell Katrina anything? Wait, I thought she didn't like being called Cat. She told me to call her Cat. You better check with that before you take her out. Jones started up the hill along the basalt rocks on the opposite shoulder. I'm not taking her out. This guy can keep his mouth shut, said Bucky as the music blasted through Jones's phone speaker. You do that, Bucky, said Jones, cutting the line, and he wondered how Bucky got his phone number after he had changed it last month. The phone line rang again. Jones pressed his lips and then clutched it tightly. You listen to me, you bubble-headed moron. The voice on the other end was low and direct. Is that you, Jones? Who is this? I've already made calls about you. You seem to have an eye for investigation, and you've worked with the Bureau out west. Let me officially tell you to stay out of this, or I'll have you locked up. What office do you work out of, Mr. Mulvaney? Not important, said Mulvaney as a vehicle, high beams flashing, appeared down the hill behind him. What do you want with me? asked Jones, adjusting his rearview mirror to the approaching headlights. Just giving you some words of wisdom. Why all the secrecy? 
he asked as one to do his lumber's pickup trucks move close to his bumper. It's not your concern, said Mulvaney. Pretty obvious to me, Chick, but the problem is not that Lou Marlowe was murdered, but by whom, and where, and for what reason. Let Lane handle it, Jones, said Mulvaney. Protecting Hamilton Fletcher could be considered obstruction. You have all the answers. Have a nice night. Jones stared at the phone display as the pickup truck backed away and he cut Mulvaney's call. The truck accelerated, beeping the horn. Jones fought to keep control of his jeep near the crest of the Devonshire Hills. Arnie Dewars, wearing a blue plaid bathrobe, his head tilted back, laughed as he had a cigarette in his hand. The woman driving the truck also had black-rimmed glasses. She was very close to being an exact copy of Arnie with her bulbous nose and dark hair. This time she held down the horn, veering so close to Jones that he was forced onto the road shoulder. He hit several potholes. Then the truck's taillights disappeared into the night. Jones shook his head and slowly pulled the jeep toward the rest area before the road to the quarries. He opened the door and checked the tire before getting back inside. A larger truck, maybe an 18-wheeler, chugged toward the crest as if it had engine trouble. When Jones saw Herbert Lane's limo stuck behind the long truck, he flipped off his headlights. Through the trees, he saw Herbert's driver attempting to pass as the truck, its engine straining, slowly rolled by the rest area. Lane yelled inside the car. Jones picked up his phone as the limo followed the truck toward Hamilton. Yeah. Coco, I'm in a rest area on Route 32. What the hell are you talking about? I just saw an 18-wheeler preventing Herbert Lane from getting over the Devonshires. No kidding. I didn't think Ralphie could get trucks out of the yard. Listen, and keep this under your hat. The old man has fled the coop. I don't want to know where he is. Is this legal? Come on, Jonesy. The old man's done nothing wrong. He didn't kill Marlowe. So let Paul reveal Lane go on his midnight ride. He's going to come up empty. They want me out of this. Sure, so they can control everything. What else is going on here? Just make sure you're over the club with the social worker for the reopening on Friday. What's your name, Jonesy? Kitty Cat? <laughs> Asked Coco, laughing. Katrina, and there's no date. Listen, the old man wants us to track down Grogan. Thinks Grogan had something to do with cutting the cords. What do you think? Grogan is one smart dude. He was more than Marlowe's right-hand man. He ran everything, but had title to nothing. Wait a minute. That's dumb. People do stupid things. Tomorrow's another day. I'll talk to you. Anthony's Story by R.P. Fitton Chapter 7 Shore Road, Hamilton Bay, Hamilton, New Hampshire Jones had been pedaling hard for at least 15 miles from the Pequonicut River Bridge. He did much of his thinking when he cranked up the bike. From the time he set his foot clips on the pedals, he was upset with Muddy at the dump for hiding Slim, and Ralphie's bill was over $600. As he approached Hanson's Marina, Police lights began flashing, and the siren made him lose control of the bike. Wendell Harris, in a Hamilton cruiser, looped around Jones and waved him over. Jones was not going to finish his 20-mile ride. He stopped his bike behind the cruiser as Wendell stepped outside and strode over to Jones as if he were in a TV western. Wendell, why did you stop the bike? asked Jones, breathing heavily. Sweat covered his arms. Never question an officer of the law. Right. George has been looking for you and you're not answering your phone. 
Jones pursed his lips. You want me to answer the phone while I'm on a bicycle? Arnie Dewitt talks on the phone while he's standing up on the forklift. Yeah, look what happened to him, said Jones, still upset at Arnie and his sister. Wendell, what do you want? Not me. George, he has a quota. Well, I'm calling George in Arizona, said Jones, straddling the bike frame. I'm running this town now. Okay, Sheriff. Jones closed his eyes briefly and then removed his phone from the back pouch. He pushed in Strickland's cell phone number and the line rang. The phone bounced around before Strickland answered. Thias, I'm on vacation. And I'm training on my bike. Shouldn't ride and talk at the same time. I'm not. Wendell pulled me over. He said he had a quota. Well, he does. With motor vehicles. Look, I just received a call from Clayton Morris's nephew, Stubble, the one who did the Marlowe autopsy. Let me guess. Lou Marlowe is dead. Strickland cleared his throat. No, not funny. Lou Marlowe, according to Stubble, was dead before he hit the ground. Matthias, Stubble said that Lou Marlowe was poisoned. That makes no sense. The whole thing is ludicrous. What does George say? asked Wendell. You tell Wendell to mind his own business, said Strickland, and stop pulling over bicycles. George says, I heard, I heard, said Wendell, kicking the tire. What poison, George? asked Jones. Lily of the Valley. You're telling me, George, that Lou Marlowe ate a plant. It killed him. And then he was pushed out of a plane with a cut parachute. Look, we're off to Grand Canyon. Let Kevin or Herbert Lane handle this. Or Chick Mulvaney. Who the hell is Chick Mulvaney? FBI. Well, it sounds like there's more to this. Yeah, obviously somebody thought the cause of death was so obvious they wouldn't look for the poison. Again, how could somebody convince Marlowe to eat a plant? I will. By the way, I have a hundred bucks on Rick Morrow to beat you. Great. Thanks a lot, George. Morrow's going to lose. Now have a nice trip. Jones shook his head as he called Clayton's office. Don't worry, Matthias. My money is on you, said Wendell. Thanks, Wendell. Clayton Morris. Clayton, why did Lou Marlowe eat a plant? I'm fine, Matthias. How are you? Not good. Marlowe was poisoned. Marlowe had coffee, a ham sandwich, and minestrone soup. And then he gnawed on a plant. No, I found patches on his skin and lily of the valley. Lily of the valley is often mistaken for wild garlic. But the plant has cardiac glycioids, an effect like exposure to that of digitalis. I'd say Marlowe was quite uncomfortable. It's clear that he had some kind of seizures. Somebody cleaned him up with a liquid soap. But the heart arrhythmia is what killed Lou Marlowe. Why dump him out of a plane with a bogus chute? Maybe to get us looking uh, in another direction. Herbert Lane is trying to find Hamilton Fletcher. Well, how does Herbert link Hamilton to what happened to Marlowe? Motive. Marlowe was dead for at least 15 minutes before he hit the ground. No pressure points, as if somebody moved his body. I'd like to know where he had the soup and sandwich. Once he was back along Shore Drive, Jones battled the sea breeze. What required further investigation was where Marlowe ate something prior to going up in the plane.
Jones had to locate the runway for Marlowe's plane. Incidental, but important, was the identity of the pilot and whoever cut the cords. Jones stood in his bare feet. He had just showered and changed into casual clothes. The kitchen counter phone rang as he poured a soft drink across the ice cubes in a tall glass. Matthias Jones. Jones? said Herbert Lane in a rising crescendo. Jones heard people talking in the background. Jones, you're in serious trouble. I confess, I did it. Now we're getting somewhere. I was speeding on my bike. Your mouth is going to sink you, Jones, said Lane. Tell me right now where Hamilton Fletcher is. Jones drank the cool, soft drink. Hello? Hello? Jones? Are you there? Jones set down the glass. Just having a drink, Herbert. What do you want? You know where Fletcher is. Jones shook his head. I have no idea where Hamilton went. You said you were going to question him. He wasn't at Fletcher Hill. And you, Jones, prevented me from getting there promptly. Who killed Lou Marlowe, Herbert? Jones heard him exhale. You and I both know that Hamilton Fletcher had reason to murder Marlowe. I will nail your ass to the wall if you're withholding information. I'm going to have Roland Chance grill you, mister. Getting pounded by that jewelry would be cruel and inhuman punishment. Herbert hung up. Jones set the receiver down. Now Jones was glad he never got Hamilton's information from Coco. Jones moved up to the living room and flipped on the Red Sox game. He put his feet up on the coffee table. Then the doorbell rang. Jones took another sip of his drink and shuffled over to the window as he glanced at the game. Curly-haired Coco, his silver cross earring dangling from his ear in the sunlight, pushed the bell again. Thanks for opening the door, Jonesy, he said as he strolled inside. Coco, Lou Marlowe was poisoned. What? You heard me. Stubble found Lily of the Valley in his digestive... Are you saying Marlowe ate a plant and killed him? That's what they're saying. He was dead 15 minutes before he hit the ground. Has to be Grogan, because he'll run everything now. You want a drink? No, I don't want a drink. Coco shook his head. We're going out to Flanagan Field. Well, come on, Coco. I just biked 20 miles. Right. Get something on your feet. Jones stared at him, and Coco raised his brows. Jonesy, come on. You're the smart-ass investigator. I thought I was supposed to stay out of this. Since when do you listen to Lane? And Mulvaney and Phillips? You think the plane took off from this Flanagan airport? It's not an airport, bro. Coco looked out the front window as Jones retrieved his sneakers. When did that idiot do his escape? Last night, said Jones, lacing his sneakers. His sister almost ran me off of 32. Arnie thought it was a big joke. Coco squinted as he looked out the window. That bozo is out there now, riding around the back of his truck. Well, his sister must be driving. He's sitting on the edge of the tailgate. Jones looked outside as the truck rounded Main Street, and Arnie was whipped against the truck bed. Then he pretended he was surfing. He's going to kill himself. They've been saying that for years, Jonesy. Come on, I've got the Club Max truck. Coco, on the phone, drove the new black truck over the Crosstown Bridge. Jones gazed over Prince William's skyline in the afternoon sun. Coco set the phone on the holder. I got the skinny on Grogan. What do you mean? 
Coco lit a cigarette. He opened his window and blew out the smoke. The accounts receivable guy, Stu. Stu at Wingate. He's going to be at the club's reopening. How did you arrange that? Coco took another drag. <laughs> Susie Q. Who's she? She's Stu's date, Jonesy. We're going to find out why the hell Grogan was in the hospital trying to get to Kostecki. I want to know what Grogan's position is now that Marlo's dead. And if Susie Q doesn't find out, you'll find out. Jonesy, you have this opinion of me like I'm some kind of thug. Jones raised his brows. Well, someone would. Very good, Jonesy. Welcome to planet Earth. Coco checked the GPS inside the truck. Most of the area on the screen was shaded green and marked East Devonshire State Forest. The road itself had begun off the back of a gas station in Prince William. I'll be damned. This dirt road isn't even on the map. Shows we're going through the forest, said Jones, finishing a now cold cup of Big Mama's coffee. He placed the styrofoam cup on the fine-cut dark carpet as the truck bounced over the dirt road, lined by tall pines and oaks. Hey, don't leave that cup on the floor. What do you want me to do, chuck it out the window? I don't care what you do with it, just don't mess up the truck. How would you fly a plane in here? That's what we'll ask Carruthers. Funny that Warren Carruthers is up here in the middle of nowhere 24-7. Coco slowed near a series of potholes past the junction of another road. My thoughts exactly, Jonesy. They're flying stolen goods or drugs out of here. Then he's up here to make sure nobody comes snooping. Tire tracks rounded the corner of the other road and up the dirt hill. There's dozens of tire tracks out there. That side road ain't on the map either. Open the glove compartment, Jonesy. Jones popped the open latch, revealing a long, dark pistol. A gun? Not a status pistol. Jones lifted the pistol out carefully and set it on the seat. Coco picked it up confidently and checked the safety. This is the word I got on the street. A guy Uncle Dulio knows. He has to be 90 years old. He told Dulio there's a stone wall and the road passes through a break in the stone wall. But it breaks to the left and the road narrows over a small stream. Goes on for about a hundred yards to the top of a hill and comes right out in the field. The shack is along the field. You couldn't remember which side. Why Flanagan Field? Who the hell knows? Fifteen minutes later, they took the turn down the hill opposite the stone wall. The road was only a little wider than the truck, and the bridge over the stream consisted of several planks. But the road on the far side was packed with crushed bluestone. They didn't haul this stone up here for hikers, said Jones. No kidding. The truck tilted upward, but easily ascended the hill through the woods. A brightened area through the trees indicated an opening. Coco picked up the gun off the seat. They emerged in the sunshine in a flat area surrounded by tall trees. It was almost as long as a football field and about three quarters as wide. Jones noticed a linear shack under the pines to the right. I've lived in Prince William all my life, Jonesy. I never heard of this place. That tells me one group is using it, said Jones. If not, everybody would know about it. Right. Marlow could have been flying anything out of this place. And then bring it back through the woods. A bullet pierced the side of the truck and Coco veered to the right. What the hell? said Coco, releasing the safety on the gun. I'll burn his damn shack to the ground. This is a new truck. Jones heard two more shots as Coco looped the truck around. Where are you going? I'm going to take it right to him. 
He'll kill us. He's not going to kill us, Jones. He's trying to scare us out of here. The truck gained speed across the grassy field. Coco was headed on a direct course with the shack. No more shots were fired as Coco slid the truck sideways toward the shack. Then he leaped outside. Jones reluctantly followed. Hey, Carruthers, you old fool! It's a brand new truck! A raspy voice emerged from one of the side windows. I'm warning you, you're a dead man! Yeah, right, said Coco, and he kicked in the front door. Jones strolled in very slowly. Carruthers, a bearded man in a blue and red striped tank top and a New England Patriots hat, pointed a rusted rifle at Jones and Coco. You moron, what are you firing at my truck for? It's my job. Well, lost, hotshot. Coco looked around at the table and chairs, side cabinets, and a wood stove. A half bottle of Jim Beam whiskey sat atop the counter. The scattered rugs were moldy. A side bedroom with a cot was off to the right. Get out, said Carruthers, thrusting the rifle at them several times. Pour yourself another brew, pal, and figure out how you're going to pay for my truck. Coco grabbed the gun and Carruthers quickly did pour himself another whiskey. My boss will pay for it. You live up here all alone and you're telling us you have a boss, said Jones. Carruthers smacked his lips after he drank. Daisy May! What? asked Coco, tilting his head. Carruthers tipped the Jim Bean bottle toward the dirty glass. Hey, look, Daniel Boone, I'm not bringing my truck back to the entrance at the gas station in Prince William. How can I get out of here? Cross the field? No exit up here. Carruthers lifted the glass and Coco placed the pistol at his neck. There's another road, loser. Leads to the quarries, okay? Eventually. Very rough. Just go back to the gas station. Again, he hoisted the glass. Lou Mallow flies out of here, don't he? Carruthers' fish eyes widened. Now he looked scared as he gripped the glass. I live up here alone. Who's your boss? Unavailable. You know, Warren, old buddy, I could blow you away. There ain't nobody going to find you till the next plane flight. Now answer me. Did Lou Mallow fly out of here last week? Who wants to know? Coco dragged the gun along Carruthers' neck. Gun wants to know. Yeah, Mallow flew out of here last week. Coco looked at Jones and then back at Carruthers. Ain't that just Danny? Who was the pilot? asked Jones. Usual. Who? asked Coco. Olson. Butch Olson. What's his real name, genius? Clarence. So we got Mallow flying out of here and Olson was the pilot. Carruthers tilted the glass and guzzled the whiskey. Oh, Daisy May! There were more people up here, Warren, and Mallow was wearing a chute, correct? Correct. Who else was up here? Dirty blonde hair. Helped him with the chute. Don't know his name. What about Grogan? asked Jones. No, Grogan's never up here. You mean for your plane shipments, said Jones. Yeah, choppers. Very good, Warren. You open your mouth to Grogan about this or us being up here, and I'll have somebody up here in the woods, someone who won't miss when he fires at you. Or maybe you'll just burn up in these woods. I won't say nothing. This other guy, did he pack Marlowe's chute? Asked Jones. The chute was already strapped on Marlowe. See that truck out there, Warren? Yeah, says Club Max. That's right. Anybody bothers you, I've seen you before. Coco tucked the pistol in his jeans. I ain't never met you before in my life, pal. 
You drunken old fool, get back to your bottle. You shoot at my truck again and I'll kill you. Anthony Story by R.P. Fitton Chapter 8 Flanagan Field, East State Forest, Newtown, New Hampshire Jones was about to call the county psychiatric hospital. His cell rang and it was Muddy Jacobs at the landfill. Muddy, why are you calling me? Slim says he's sorry. Well, you let Slim call me. And better yet, let him pay for my Jeep. He wants to make it up here. Wonderful, said Jones as he hung up. Jones, cell phone to his ear, sat in the truck at Club Max's parking lot for at least a minute before he called the hospital. County Hospital, Nurse Black. This is Matthias Jones from Hamilton College. Oh, Cat's friend. Now wait a minute, she's not my friend. I have a message from her, said Blatz. She'll be at Nuncio's at 7 p.m. on Friday. Kind of pushy, don't you think? Asked Jones, still thinking Katrina might file a complaint or call the Fletchers. I haven't done anything. What was that? Nothing. Bye. Bye. No, wait, nurse. The line was cut, and he redialed, getting a busy signal. On the third time, the line rang. Nurse Blatt. This is... I know who it is. I wish you'd stop pestering the nurse's desk. I'm calling about Lark Larson. What about him? Is he speaking yet? Well, he's chirping like a bird. Then he asked for somebody named Snooky. Jones rolled his eyes. Snooky McKenzie? We're trying to locate this. You wouldn't know where we could find him, would you? Nurse Blatt, Snooky McKenzie is no longer with us. Oh, he's dead. I'm sorry. No, gone. He left Hamilton. Your security guard's paperwork came through. He's being released in the morning. Well, thanks for the warning. I'll sound the alarm. You know, Mr. Dewis said you had a temper. The line went to dial tone. Ralphie's huge wrecker, light flashing, swung around the corner. Coco emerged from the front doors of Club Max. He gestured as he spoke. Yeah, Ralphie, Jonesy was with me. Ralphie, his rusty hair, prison cut, and his beard growth were a few days old, caught sight of Jones. Hey, Jonesy. Ralphie. Ralphie put his finger through the bullet hole. Hey, you guys okay? Coco stepped forward. Hey, stop the social chit-chat, Ralphie. I need that truck looking mint for the opening. Well, yeah, it'll, it'll be ready in the morning. Ralphie creased his brow. Unless you call the cops. What do you care if I call the cops, snapped Coco. Just fix that hole. Gina! Yelled Ralphie, snapping his fingers. A shot blonde in a blue and white Prince William Raiders jacket rounded the wrecker. Yeah, Ralphie? Bring the truck over to the shop and have Eddie come fix the door. Eddie don't like working nights said Gina, wincing as she waited for Coco's response. You tell Eddie, said Coco. He'd better be there when I come over later. Gina opened her eyes and quickly hopped over to the truck. Yes, Coco. Come on, Jonesy. We're lucky that old Coop Carruthers didn't kill one of us. Coco opened the heavy doors to Club Max. Look, Jonesy, if you didn't get shot, then forget about it. Construction workers were still installing lights and fine-tuning the booths. Bruno, his hair combed straight back, signaled Coco. Hey, Coco, we got a problem with the sound system. Coco's eyes opened wide. I knew that rodent messed up the speakers with his howling. Should I call Danny the sound man? 
Just fix it, Bruno. I ain't got time for this. Then he stepped toward Jones. My mother begged me to have dinner at home tonight, and here I am in this three-ring circus. Bucky's getting out tomorrow morning. Let me tell you something, Jonesy. If that rodent gets within 50 miles of this club this time, I'll short-circuit his padunka. Jones's cell rang as he finished his dinner in one of the booths across from the Club Max bar. He swigged some almond blend coffee and then answered the phone. Jones. Hi, Coach, said Bucky. What do you want, Bucky? It's Decky. He's gone. No more gin rummy. What do you mean he's gone? asked Jones as he sipped the coffee. It's Decky was a no-show at breakfast this morning. Bucky, what are they saying? Who? The hospital. Jones signaled Coco talking with two construction workers at the bar. Coco tensed his face and waved off Jones. The FBI agent, Mulvaney, he said he'd put out a bulletin. Wait, why is he over there? asked Jones. Cat called him over. Why would she call him? Hey, I don't know nothing. Jones raised his voice. Where is Mulvaney now, Bucky? Don't know. This is very strange. I know something you don't know. What is it? Agent Mulvaney said Father Gallagher said that Mrs. Kostecki was freaking out. What about the police, asked Jones. Have they been notified? Well, maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. You're as sharp as a tack. What tack? Forget it, said Jones. I told Agent Mulvaney to get the hell out. He said he was going to smack me if I didn't get out of the way. You should learn to mind your own business, Bucky. I told you that. This guy isn't scared by the FBI said Bucky. And Slim says he's sorry for ruining your Jeep. Arnie made him do it. Dummy, said Jones. Huh? Slim should learn to speak for himself. Oh. Jones hung up. Coco approached Jones. What is it, Jonesy? What's the matter? You're all wound up. Don Kostecki is missing, Coco. Coco stared at him. Missing? And Mulvaney's been over there, said Jones, not telling him Bucky provided the information. I'm telling you right now. I don't know who kidnapped Kostecki, but Kostecki's a dead man. They'll never find the body, either. Guarantee it. Jones could sense his anger. You know, I've had enough of this bullshit, Jonesy. I'm calling Mr. Fiore. As Coco headed for his back office behind the folding doors, Jones thought about punching in Kevin Phillips' number. But he hesitated and then put the phone away. If they wanted him out of the investigation, then he'd keep the information to himself. Jones saw Coco opening the folding doors down back. Why was Kostecki in the county psychiatric hospital anyways? Just because he got a little upset at work? And Chick Mulvaney made a special trip over to the hospital. Maybe Phillips was right about this being more complicated. Coco crossed the room as he lit a cigarette. Mr. Fiore is ripshit. He says Mulvaney's no damn good. Does he think that or is it really true? asked Jones. Ah, maybe he has a beef with Mulvaney, I don't know. He thinks that somebody hired Kostecki to cut the cords on Lou Malo's chute. And Warren Carruthers has his cards close to his vest. Carruthers is running scared, Jonesy. The rear folding doors opened and Chick Mulvaney himself, in an open white shirt, stepped into the renovation with the other two men. Coco's eyes opened wide as he jaunted toward Mulvaney. Coco? Speak of the devil. I hope you have a warrant to be in here, Chick. No, but I can get one. He looked around the club. Very nice. You must have come into some money. 
No, we make money here. Coco said nothing about Mulvaney being at the county psychiatric hospital. You know, we can lock you up, said Mulvaney with an annoying grin. Then go ahead, I ain't got time for this crap. I'll be short and sweet. You had a brother. Hey, don't toy with me, chick, said Coco, pointing at Mulvaney. Mulvaney saw Jones back in the bar. You and Coach Jones are friends. What do you care? You have connections to Hamilton College. Get to the point. What happened to Anthony? You're the cop. You find out. You may have information about lost money. Maybe your recollection will be better in front of a grand jury. Hey, look, smart boy. You come waltzing into my club with no warrant. I got no lawyer present. Maybe Fiore will get you one. I have no idea what you're talking about. Mulvaney stepped closer to Coco. You got Hamilton Fletcher out of town. Time's up, chick. Get your warrant. Get out. Mulvaney had a confident grin on his face. Hey, you guys have a nice day. Coco grimaced as he headed along the bar. He lit a cigarette as Mulvaney and the others exited through the rear sliders. Cops are bad enough, but I got no use for the feds. Sounds like he was just looking for information, Coco. Whose side are you on, Jonesy? The truth. Anthony's Story by R.P. Fitton Chapter 9 St. Bart's Church, Prince William, New Hampshire Gallagher unwrapped his vestments and finished the early daily mass. He sat at the kitchen table in front of his atrium doors as the sunlight burst across his outside garden, highlighting his light orange hair. He pointed at Jones, biting into a piece of toast with orange marmalade and melted butter. Thias, I only agree to this because I truly believe you can help Mrs. Kostecki find her husband. Well, I know she's upset, Jim, said Jones as he sipped on the hot coffee from a thin china cup. You know, you shouldn't be eating so much if you're training for that race. Yeah, well, Rick Morrow's probably had Big Mama's Donuts half a dozen before breakfast. Matthias, you of all people should know not to underestimate an opponent. The only thing I underestimate is his weight. The man was a football captain. Well, that was ten years ago. Plus, Kevin Phillips is still upset with me. For what? For questioning things, father. One of Gallagher's housekeepers leaned in from the hall, a gray-haired woman named Mrs. Wyndham. Father, you have the uh, over-50 club coming in for nine for the New York trip. Yes, Marjorie, I know, said Gallagher, still holding his napkin. You know, Matthias, when I was fighting for the New England championship, I failed to acknowledge Bunch Douglas's right hook. I thought you were undefeated, Jim. I was. What about the right hook? Gallagher looked perturbed and held his jaw. My knee hit the canvas. You, and you're, and you, you're out there making fun of Rick Morrow. So you won the fight. Sure. I stood up and I knocked him on his keister. Remember what I say about not taking things for granted. And call me after you talk to Mrs. Kostecki. She'll be here in about 15 minutes. And Jim? And what? If you're lucky enough to be Irish, you're lucky enough. Amen, amen. Mrs. Kostecki was a small lady who wore a button beige sweater even in the summertime. She had thin gray glasses that seemed to blend with her hair color. Jones walked along the empty pews. Across the way, Lanny, the maintenance man, moved the vacuum cleaner across the floor along the confession booths. 
Mrs. Kostecki? Oh, Coach Jones, she asked, gazing up from the pew. Her eyes were reddened. Jones sat in the pew in front of her and turned slowly. Are you all right? She nodded. As all right as I can be. I know you've already talked with Detective Phillips. I have, but Father Gallagher said you're an investigator, like your father. Well, not professionally, but I seem to get drawn into these investigations. She nodded again. Donnie would never have a breakdown. Mr. Grogan called him the Iron Man. But Detective Phillips said he went berserk at work. Donnie was a level-headed guy. I don't understand it. If he had stress, we'd go on vacation. I remember we just up and left for a trip across New York a few years back. Was there ever any incident at work or any other job? He went off to work. You know, his usual job with the baggage for Prince W. Air, or he did odd jobs. What odd jobs? He serviced and cleaned the lockers for the platypus company in the lobby. Oh, for people at the Marlowe Company. A good second income. Donnie always said that the big one was just one day away. Mrs. Kostecki, if you don't mind me asking, who specifically at the Marlowe Companies? She shook her head. Donnie never said. I just deposited the money. Who signed the check? It was stamped with Lou Marlowe's name. Do you have a garden, Mrs. Kostecki? asked Jones. Oh, no, I have a black thumb. Did he know Butch Olson? Oh, sure, he worked with Butch. Wait, about two weeks ago, Donnie was told to go to the Plumley Estate and Gardens. You know, along the Denton Flats. It's a beautiful place this time of year. I know where it is, said Jones, as his stomach jolted. And you don't know who sent him? No. Did he bring back any plants? Oh, Donnie gave me roses on our anniversary and lilies and Easter, but no plants. She wiped her eyes with the Kleenex. As far as Butch Olson, he's flown locally for years. He's an original dragon flyer. What's that? They fly old planes. I think they're based out of Massachusetts. Do they have a red insignia? Yes, yes, a dragon, of course. He fly for Lou Marlowe? Oh, Lou Marlowe had a private jet with a pilot from Transcontinental, but no airline. Does that jet have a red dragon insignia on it? asked Jones. I never saw a dragon insignia. That jet is docked near the PW New York Airlines for L.M. Lou Marlowe. He has the L.M. Lou Marlowe lettering for an insignia. Donnie said Lou Marlowe had all sorts of guests, mostly female, brought on that jet. Does Olson live in Prince William? Well, he lives in the Valley Hill apartment. Donnie used to go to his legendary poker games there. Olson doesn't know how to play poker, and Donnie always cleaned up. We put the money in our college fund. Then you have a child in college. I have two children in college. Donnie told me never to worry about their college tuitions. He said he'd make it work. Do you need money, Mrs. Kostecki? Father says he has some in the rainy day fund if I need it. You let me know if that's not enough. Thank you. Let me ask you this. Did Don work for other companies at the airport? When needed. I mean, with Olson or Marlowe? I mean, even if temporary? No, these were odd jobs around the airport. Yeah, he worked with Butch. They were friends. You ever mention Warren Carruthers? I don't know him. Flanagan Field? She furrowed her brow. 
Ronnie mentioned it, but I never questioned it. Flanagan Field, isn't that the field they used in World War II? Yes, now it's all overgrown. Do you have a photo of Don? In my wallet, but I need to keep it. I'll take a picture with my phone. She opened the wallet and slid out a color three-by-four from the holder. Pistecki looked thin, with short, almost styled hair. He had blue eyes and wore a lightweight plaid shirt. Jones snapped the photo twice and then handed the photo back to Mrs. Kostecki. That picture was taken around five years ago. Well, that's fine. Thank you for coming over, Mrs. Kostecki. Please stay on this, Coach Jones. I, I, I'm going to stay here and pray. I'll stay on it, said Jones, squeezing her hand. Jones retreated along the pews and then stopped outside Gallagher's garden. He jogged along the brick walkway and dipped his head into the kitchen. Jim, Jim, Gallagher's housekeeper entered the kitchen from the front. Coach Jones, Mrs. Wyndham, is Father Gallagher still here? Why, I believe Father is ordering supplies with Mr. Ridden down at Mr. Ridden's office. Thank you. Jones returned to the garden and opened a side door to the parish hall. He ran down the lengthy corridor to the last room on the right. Gallagher, clipboard in hand, stood next to Ridden, who was counting the items on the shelves. Jim? Working out early, Matthias, said Gallagher, checking the clipboard. How many was that, Danny? Only five, Father. Okay, okay. Jim, can I talk to you in the corridor? Sure, said Gallagher, handing the clipboard to Ridden. The priest followed Jones into the corridor. What's the matter? Jim, Mrs. Kostecki told me her husband was ordered over to the Plumley estate, part of the odd jobs he did in his spare time. Ah, the lily of the valley. Maybe. You and the garden club are tight within the estate, right? We are. Can you get me in there? I need to talk about Kostecki. I need to know who sent him over to the estate. That's a mighty strong inference if carried through. I can get you on the grounds, but with Kostecki possibly dead, you may not find an answer. Jones held the cell to his ear. Jonesy, Plumley's a place where old ladies oogle at flowers and plants. Kostecki would stand out like a sore thumb if he was sent out there to get that plant. He was sent out there. Krogan wouldn't be that stupid. Well, maybe he was confident. When you're overconfident and there's a big payoff, you make mistakes. Who said that, your old man? No, I did. It's obvious. Look, Gallagher is contacting the people in charge over there. He and I will go over there and I'll treat them with kid gloves, see if I can find answers. Find out if they even have that plan over there. Herbert Lane is determined to bring Hamilton in. Have you heard from Hamilton? I talked to the old man. He's not even in the country, Jonesy. Is he all right? My life should be so good. I'm glad he's out of here, because I got word from the courthouse. Because I can do you one better. Word is that Lane is issuing a warrant for his arrest. Fleeing the country does not look good. Ah, Bentley will get him off. Listen. I have someone following Grogan. He's meeting with Phillips at noontime. I don't know why I'm getting pushback on this case. Because Lane is fudging the investigation. Listen, Stu will be with Susie Q at the club tonight. How did you arrange that? No big deal. I'm not sure about Grogan Jones. He's a hatchet man. But I don't know if he had those cords cut. And did he order Kostecki to go to Plumley? I'm not sure. Jones stared at the bumblebees hovering around the flowers. I have Kostecki's picture, and I found that Olson lived at Valley View Apartments. 
He's flown planes for years out of PW Airport. Good work, Jonesy. Don't listen to Lane and Phillips. Just keep pushing forward. You know my feeling about the cops. If we can find out who killed Marlowe, then the old man is off the hook. Anthony's Story by R.P. Fitton Chapter 10 Nuncio's Restaurant, 919 West Crescent Street, Prince William, New Hampshire Jones parked the jeep at a meter and walked toward Nuncio's occupying the corner. He now surmised that Sean Grogan must have sent Kostecki over to the Plumley Gardens in order to get the plant that would kill Lou Marlowe. Jones was unsure why Kostecki would go crazy at the airport after the accident on Fletcher Hill. Jones looked up at the magnificent gold-leaded sign on the smooth black background as he entered the restaurant. He was ready to hand the tickets to the obnoxious Katrina and then have a quiet meal alone. Nuncio himself escorted Jones across the elegant restaurant. A stunned Jones stared at Katrina's blue velvet evening dress as she stood at Coco's table. Jones, wearing a brown blazer that he wore for awards nights at the college, remained standing. Well, you can't be the same Katrina. She looked older with makeup and blue eyeshadow. She smiled. I am. You have a strange way of asking for a date. Worked, didn't it? Coco's personal waiter motioned Jones to sit down. You certainly haven't packed in here tonight, David. Water quickly filled the stem glasses, and David soon placed the wine order. Jones still hadn't spoken. Before the lasagna Boyanese arrived, Katrina lifted the wine glass to her mouth. Cat got your tongue? Jones gripped his water glass and looked around. He had the feeling he was being watched. Why were you acting like such a jerk? You maneuvered me over here for a free meal and football tickets. And something else I can't put my finger on. You push a negative hard enough, it'll push through and become a positive. Now, words of wisdom. Jones grabbed his utensils. What happened to Don Kostecki? I don't know. You really don't know or you're not telling me? It was impossible for him to just walk out. Someone who knew what they were doing got him out. When I was there, you ran to the phone after Grogan had his temper tantrum. Private call, unrelated. I don't believe you. Suit yourself, but I really do like football. Yeah, well, enjoy your meal, Miss Kimball. Through the front window span across the restaurant, Herbert Lane, without his usual entourage, bopped along the sidewalk toward the entrance. I can definitely see this is not going to be my day. Oh, cheer up, coach. In an hour, we'll be rocking. Oh, no, we won't. You just don't like me, she said with the wine glass at her mouth. Katrina, although I find you quite intriguing, I'm not bringing you to Club Max. She stuck out her tongue. Herbert Lane had now entered the restaurant and was scanning the patrons. Where did you get your degree anyway? Who says I have a degree? Jones did a double take. Herbert Lane spotted Jones. You're kind of cute. Jones! called Herbert as he approached. Jones closed his eyes for a second. Good evening, Herbert. You know Miss Kimball from the county psychiatric hospital. Herbert's toupee looked firmly in place. Tampering with the witnesses, Jones? You're one step away from Don Pacheco's jail cell. He's just bringing me to dinner, Herbert Sherbert. And I was waiting for you to bring in Hamilton Fletcher on the arrest warrant, said Jones. How do you know about the arrest warrant, Jones? Asked Herbert, putting both hands on the linen tablecloth. His blue eyes bulged. I just issued that warrant. 
I'm connected, said Jones, as Katrina snickered. That laugh is extremely annoying, young lady. Chill out, big boy, she said, and even Jones laughed. <laughs> Herbert looked at her with wide eyes and then pointed at Jones. You know where Hamilton Fletcher is. I don't. David arrived with bread and appetizers. Excuse me, Mr. District Attorney. Why are you here, Herbert? I believe in taking people off guard. Oh. Herbert looked up at the waiter. He stepped back and then addressed Jones. And what are you doing at Coco Stefani's private table? Because he rates, Mr. Big Stuff, said Katrina, raising her glass. And I do mean big. Jones did a double take and then looked up at Herbert. You watch your step, Jones, and you too, young lady. I may just drag you along when I prosecute Hamilton Fletcher, and it will make national headlines. Yeah, on the animal planet, said Katrina, raising the wine glass. You both are equally exasperating. Herbert adjusted his toupee and retreated like an overweight marching soldier into the restaurant. Lane is the worst tipper, said David, setting down the bread. $160 meal, and he leaves $5.25. He probably made Roland Chance pay for it, said Jones. You know, I thought that at the time, said David. Bread, said Jones, as he lifted the tray for Katrina. What about Sean Grogan and Lou Marlowe? They come in here? Well, Mr. Grogan usually leaves a 20% tip, and Mr. Marlowe is usually all business in his suit and on the phone constantly, except last Monday he wore a casual outfit when he was in here with Mr. Grogan. Coffee? asked Jones. Club Max, here we come! Jones sneered at Katrina and thought about what David had just said. David rearranged the trays on the table with his back to Jones. Then he turned. Coach Jones, what can I get you? You said last Monday Lou Marlowe was in here. What did he order? Oh, gee, I, I know they had soup and a big guy... Uh, in shape with short dark hair and prominent jaw, stop by. Mulvaney. Thank you, David. We can have one hell of a night, coach, said Katrina, holding his hand. Jones looked around the restaurant. By Jones's tabulation, she'd only had a glass and a half of wine. I keep thinking you're trying to divert me from something. What's the matter? Don't you like to have a good time? She asked, flickering her eyelashes. What was Chick Mulvaney doing with the deceased Mr. Milo on the day he died? Why didn't you ask him when you had the chance? Jones pushed the speed dial and Coco answered a short time later. Hey, Hotshot, how's my table? Wonderful. Hey, if you want to put it on my tab, go ahead, said Coco. Jones could tell he had just lit a cigarette. Mulvaney was in Nuncio's with Lou Milo and Grogan on Monday for lunch. Lou was dressed in the clothes we found him in on Fletcher Hill. And they had soup. There you go, Jonesy. Mulvaney is a sleaze and a snitch, but this puts him in the middle of this mess. You need to check and see if anyone else showed up. Wait, I'll call Nuncio later and we'll go through the slips. What about Herbert Lane? He was just in here. Don't talk to Lane right now, Jonesy. That windbag will double-cross you. Let Bentley handle it. I'll see you in a few at the club. Katrina clapped her hands. Will you be quiet? asked Jones. Then he called LG in Bermuda. Jones related last Monday's restaurant story. LG was ecstatic now that he had possible evidence to clear Hamilton Fletcher. Jones thought he heard Hamilton Fletcher in the background. When Jones paid the bill, his lips pursed. Katrina started to stand. 
For a second, all he saw was her long legs. Yikes! Getting tingles, coach? Listen, you, he said, pointing. The rest of her evening dress fell into place. Then she began to leave the table with the wine glass still in her hand. Jones quickly scoffed up the glass from her and set it back on the table and steered her toward the lobby. Where's your car? Oh, I don't contribute to the hydro hydrocarbon footprint. Oh, God forbid, said Jones, holding her arm to keep her steady. Thank you, Tingles. Don't call me Tingles. You're forgetting something, she asked with her hand out. Tickets? Unbelievable, said Jones. Buy them like everyone else. Oh, you're a mean, mean man. Who are you? he asked, steadying her on the sidewalk. Katrina Marie Kimball. And how long have you been at that hospital? Oh, for a few years. Don't know exactly, she said, slurring her words. Then I guess it's over. What's over? You're crazy, said Jones, pivoting as he walked away. You broke my heart, Tingles, she called out. Yeah, well, you'll survive. Jones figured this woman had to be wacky to work where she did, but something else bothered him. It was as if the stun at the hospital and this little performance was deliberate. Jones speed walked down to his Jeep and checked the meter in front of the woman's fashion store. Club Max was several blocks away. He started the Jeep and quickly downshifted. But when he looked in the mirror for Katrina, she was no longer standing in front of Nuncio's. A few minutes later, Jones rolled into Club Max's valet parking, but found a space behind the dumpster. The music rocked across the overflow parking lot as he opened the Jeep door in the twilight. A new and larger Club Max neon sign sent a pink glow across the cars. Coco had a couple of his girls greeting at the door. Jones recognized the woman on the left. Hello, BB. Welcome, Jonesy, she said with a cutesy smile. Your girlfriend is looking for you. Oh, yeah? What did my girlfriend look like? Blonde, blue eyes, and a blue evening dress. Yeah, yeah, that's her. She said my friend the coach will be here soon. Yeah, well, she was drunk. No, no, she was stone cold sober. Yeah, I thought so. Thanks, Bebe. Anytime, she said, giving Jones a wink with her chestnut eyes. She opened the door and Jones walked inside Club Max. The new bar was filled with those sitting and another row of standing patrons. The dartboard area had even more boards, some rounded in blue neon, and the scoreboards were lit with red digits below. Even the booths were filled with people. Along the forward window span was a standing area in front of the blue neon bar. Coco caught sight of Jones. Coco! Jonesy! Katrina swooped in from the dartboard area. How did you get in here? Broom! I believe that one. Now leave me alone. Oh, come on, coach. You're one hell of an actress, Katrina, if that's even your name. What's the game? What game, coach? Coco approached them halfway to the bar. Hey, thanks for coming. You must be Katrina. Hey, you have a rocking place here, Mr. Stefani. Coco, what can I get you two lovebirds to drink? I'll have a gin and tonic, said Katrina. Katrina, you're on your own, said Jones. I want to know what you're up to. What, are you already arguing with her, Jonesy? asked Coco. I did not, and I repeat, did not bring her in here. Can you beat that, Coco? What a cheap... It has nothing to do with being cheap. What's the matter with you, Jonesy? I'll get you a beer, said Coco as he headed down to Bruno at the main bar. Well, thanks for embarrassing me, you screwball. I thought you embarrassed yourself, she said. Looks like he's set up for live music. 
Jones thought about Bucky singing and ruining the speakers. You want to dance? Asked Katrina with a coy grin. Forget it, said Jones. Then he heard Bucky's familiar voice. Hey, they moved everything around here. I can't find a head. Jones turned. Bucky Driscoll wore baggy jeans, a black t-shirt with white letters that spelled stud. He held a plastic cup of beer. His identical black baseball cap had white font that said, I'm single. Hey, I love that, Bucky, said Katrina. You're so cute. Hey there, Doc. They don't call me the King of Lafayette High School for nothing. Cute? asked Jones, making a sour face. And she's not a doctor, Bucky. Always oh, just jealous. Bucky, what are you doing in here anyways? asked Jones. Coco will flip if he sees you in the club. Yeah, he'll get over it. The restroom is located right by the front entrance, Buckster, said Katrina. Buckster? Huh? By the lobby, Bucky, said Jones. I really have to go bad, shouted Bucky, and he hobbled out to the front. I love that guy. He's a piece of work is what he is, said Jones, as Coco moved back from the bar with the drinks. Oh, Coach, you're nervous. Listen, Bucky and Coco, like oil and water. Better yet, oil on fire and water. Hey, here you go, said Coco with the drink. Special delivery. Awesome, said Katrina as she took the drink. Yeah, you're going to get instant drunk again, Katrina? My pleasure, answered Coco, handing the beer to Jones. Excuse us one second, Katrina. Okay, Tingles. Tingles? asked Coco. You don't waste any time, do you, Jonesy? Coco, look. Hey, if you're going to bring a woman into the club, at least treat her right. Jones stared at the smiling Coco. I swear you like the wild woman, Jonesy. Something about her isn't right. Listen, was there any other FBI with Mulvaney at Nuncio's on Monday? I've made a few calls and nobody knows why Mulvaney is here at all. They don't know what office he's out of. Jones shook his head after sipping the beer. Just him at Nuncio's. One of them, Mulvaney or Grogan, dropped that plant poison in the soup. Or both. I gave the information to LG. He's calling Phillips. Good. Maybe the old man can come home once we nail these guys. Well, where is he? Away. Bucky emerged from the men's room. He crossed the floor, attempting to zip up his fly. So, Coco, said Jones, physically turning Coco away from Bucky. Jonesy, what are you doing? Coco, I think we need to go back up to Flanagan Field. For what? I'm not dealing with that Alki Carruthers. Jones turned him again. Hey, what the hell are you doing? We need to know the clock time from Nuncios to the field to prove the drug slowly killed Lou Marlowe. Well, you do it, snapped Coco, and he spun around and faced Bucky. Oh, I get it. You're trying to hide me from Driscoll. Hey, Roden, I'm going to say this once. Get out. Hey, I want bygones to be bygones. Yeah, and I want you to be gone. Now beat it. Bucky stepped forward and held his belt buckle with both hands. I came over here for some action. Yeah, you want action, Mr. Stud? Yeah. Coco signaled to Bruno and then pointed at Bucky. In less than a minute, with Bucky babbling and Coco getting madder, two bouncers appeared in open-collar shirts and sport coats and took Bucky by the arms and legs and carried him to the front entrance. Coco watched the doors close. I thought Driscoll was in the padded cell. Oh, he means well, said Katrina, sipping the liquor. 
Dave just charged us $600 because Elvis Driscoll there shorted out the sound system. Jones grinned as he held the beer. It's not funny, Jonesy. Well, he can't be that bad, said Katrina. He's trouble wherever he goes. I could tell you Driscoll stories until I'm blue in the face. Coco's dark eyes moved toward the front entrance. Ah, here comes Susie Q with Stewie. Jones turned, but he didn't see Katrina. Then he watched Stu flirting with Susie Q. He appears to be having a good time. I'm sure he is, said Coco. Listen, Jonesy, I gotta check in with Mr. Fiore. See if you can clarify this Mulvaney situation. We don't know nothing about this guy. Jones walked up to the blonde-haired BB. This game open, BB? Her brown eyes brightened as she spoke. You wanna play? Jones was about to speak when Stu, accompanied by the giggly Susie Q, crossed the club. Susie Q's blonde hair was lighter and straighter than BB's full coif. The scrawny Stu had dark rimmed glasses and wore an open striped shirt and white cockies. His receding hair was trimmed short and his eyes darted. He seemed nervous as he engaged in the conversation. BB handed the darts to Jones. Jones looked around for Katrina and then suddenly felt relaxed with her not around. Stu and Susie Q were seated by Bruno in the rear booth. Coco peered around the edge of the folding door. Jones' cell phone rang. Jonesy, Susie Q just texted me a few minutes ago. Stewie told her that Grogan is now controlling all the Marlowe companies. She may be able to get a list of those companies. Stewie's leaving the company. Grogan in charge. That sounds like a pretty good motive to kill Lou Marlowe. Why is Stewie leaving? Katrina left. You gotta redefine your technique there, bro. Right. Look, Susie Q ain't as dumb as she looks. She'll catch something else if Stu has a few more drinks. I'll be around. Jones cut the call. BB smiled and four darts surrounded the board center. How's that, Jonesy? You really throw those darts? Want me to do it again? Yeah, never bet on a man's game. Or a lady, she said as she led him to the dance floor. She put her hand on his shoulder. To his right, Herbert Lane, Roland Chance, and a woman with a pen and notebook wandered along the outside wall near the pool tables. Herbert still had on his gray three-piece suit. Oh, I don't need this nonsense. What is it, Jonesy? Herbert Lane and his lackeys. It's like he's following me. <laughs> I didn't vote for him, said BB. I wonder just who did, his phone sounded. Jones just stood with his mouth open. What's the matter, Jonesy? asked BB. What the hell is Lane doing at the club? shouted Coco into the phone. With the golden boy, Roland Chance, said Jones as he watched the little woman writing furiously. What's with the secretary? He's the court stenographer, Henrietta Stable. Weird he has a stenographer in here, said Jones as Herbert Lane caught sight of him. Uh-oh, he sees me. Said Coco. Lane's never been in the club. Herbert Lane walked ahead of Roland Chance toward Jones on the dance floor. Here he comes. I don't believe this crap, said Coco as the line went dead. Bucky Driscoll, asked Jones. She has a problem. Jones, said Herbert, his voice booming over the music. Jones steered BB away from Herbert and around the couples. Jones! He's not going to give up, said BB. 
Jones moved back and faced Herbert as the district attorney bumped the dancing couples. Are you following me, Herbert? Where's Stefani? Why? I came over here to personally question Stefani and you, said Herbert, jabbing his finger. Give me a break, Herbert. This is a club reopening. What do you know about Grogan, Herbert? Jones, you're barking up the wrong tree. Are you aware that Hamilton Fletcher threatened Lou Marlowe two weeks ago? Over the years, they've probably threatened each other all the time, Herbert. Oh, I don't think so. Hamilton kicked in Marlowe's door and accosted Lou Marlowe. Why? Does it matter why? Asked Herbert, his big eyes bulging. And then he said he'd kill Marlowe. Case closed. So you think he cut the cords, asked Jones. Or ordered them cut. Come on, Herbert, you're making random facts fit into a theory that you like. See here, Jones, he said, pointing. Three women appeared at the end of the bar. Bruno nodded behind the bar, and the three women in micro-mini dresses marched down with their high heels. The three women intercepted and surrounded Herbert Lane and put their arms around the district attorney. At the bar, Bruno snapped a series of photos. Bebe's phone flashed as she took photos. Then everyone in the club joined in with flash after flash. Jones grinned. I do believe that Herbert will be getting more exposure than he bargained for. Jones spotted Coco in the middle of the confusion with Herbert, standing at the end of Susie Q's table. Hey, Mr. District Attorney, welcome to Club Max, said Coco, shaking Herbert's hand. Again, the flashes went off. First time in the club? Will you, woman, get your mitts off of me? We love our district attorney, said the redhead. Herbert made the mistake of pushing the blonde and she fell back onto the floor. Bruno took four more photos. The brunette ran her fingers through Herbert's hairpiece and slid it off his shiny skull. Ooh, yuck! Coco lifted the toupee off the floor and handed it back to Herbert. You gotta get some better glue there, Mr. District Attorney. You will hear from me, Stefani, and it will be in a sworn deposition. And you too, Jones. I don't think so, pal. He turned, holding his toupee in place, and stomped out, followed by Chance and the stenographer. What do you think, Jonesy? Incredible. I'll have the DA and the babes on the cover of the Gazette and the Enterprise. Bruno's already forwarding the pictures to social media. Sounds like Lane has a scandal here, said Bibi. Coco lit a cigarette. Hey, we don't mess around. Jones, sober and awake at 2 a.m., had spent the last hour talking about the New England Patriots with Bruno and Coco, while Jones referred to the 1986 Super Bowl where the Chicago Bears trounced the Patriots 46-10. Coco had a ready answer. Come on, Jonesy, that was before Belichick and Brady, said Coco. Kraft hadn't even bought the team. Oh, so it doesn't count? Exactly. I have to go to sleep. Okay, Tingles said Coco as Bruno chuckled. See ya, Bruno. Take care, Jonesy. Jones and Coco walked across the empty club. I think the take here tonight is going to break a record. Good move remodeling the club, said Jones as he looked out the side transit. Then he opened his eyes. Coco, look at this. Across the parking lot, near the chain-link fence, someone spoke in the shadows. Katrina's blonde hair was highlighted by the light. She nodded as she spoke. Are you kidding me? 
asked Coco as he wrapped Jones' side. Who is she with now? Jones shook his head. That's not it. She's not coming on. They're having a conversation, almost like business. Who is she talking to? She was with the rodent tonight, but I don't see his shitbox in the lot. I'm insulted. Don't be. The woman's a nutcase. Both figures disappeared into the darkness. Then a car started and moved out of sight onto the street. Worse than that, she's up to no good. Why is she working at the county psychiatric hospital? asked Jones. Side road theory. Maybe someone installed her there to bring in Kostecki and later they murdered him because he helped get rid of Lou Marlowe. Well, that's a damn good theory, Jonesy. Listen, I know people downtown. Let me see what the story is with this broad. Wait a minute. There was no one around when we talked to Mulvaney when he was in the club before you reopened. So what? I mentioned that Mulvaney knew something and she said, Why didn't you ask him why you had the chance? How did she know that? Well, we're damn well going to find out. Flanagan Field may have been a secret flight area for the Marlowe drug shipments. Lily of the Valley can taste like garlic. And Lou Marlowe had his last meal before the plane flight at Nuncio's in Prince William. Jones believes that Kostecki was sent by Grogan to the Prince William Garden Club to get a Lily of the Valley. Gunfire will erupt soon, and these events will lead to the disappearance of Anthony Stefani. Join me next time as Anthony's story by Robert P. Fitton continues. Whoa! Stay back! Stay back! All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.